You know, our scriptures um, often include references to um, figures, whether they're, you know, actually one figure, sort of a metaphor, something that's going to happen in the last days, of who will, will play an important role before the second coming of Christ. And so some, you know, section 85 talks about one mighty and strong who will come and set in order the house of God. And this is seems to be usually interpreted as setting in order uh, sort of the united orders, since it's a conversation about bishops in the time of Missouri. But uh, this description is very powerful, one mighty and strong in the last days who, you know, we don't often think about the original context. What's this player going to do? Another figure, one like Moses, who's discussed, or the man like Moses. Some people suggest that Brigham Young was the man like Moses, and he said, wait, why do you think it's me? Another episode of the Cultural Hall means more questions answered, more things discussed than maybe you ever had ever considered before. Uh, Loving the opportunity to be able to speak about the last days, something I don't think that we do enough. And I know that you're going to look forward to uh, hearing from Chris and his book, Terrible Revolution, as we as we discuss the last days, uh, the time before, during and after the second coming of Christ. Certainly, that is a topic of the next hour of your lives. I hope that you enjoy it. I would to ask you, because we're almost to our 500th episode, if the cultural hall has made any sort of difference in your life, maybe it's made you really mad, maybe it's something that you can't wait to listen to uh, every episode that comes out, Uh, we're putting together our 500th episode and we want to have responses from all of you who listen. So contact at theculturalhall.com. We would love to be able to share your emails, your stories, your ponderings, your musings of the past, whatever they be, uh, as part of our 500th episode. Uh, This is episode 495, so we're getting close, so I'm going to ask you to get on it today, uh, tomorrow, tonight, sometime very soon. Contact at theculturalhall.com. Just put 500th episode in the subject line so I know that that's what's going on, and then I look forward to sharing those messages as part of the 500th episode. Now, if I don't get, you know, any emails, it's going to be a pretty short 500th episode, and that seems awfully climatic to be or anticlimactic, right? To be halfway through a millennia and not get any emails. Is that guilt? Maybe. Is it shame? Could be. I could be doing both of those things to try and get an email from you. Don't make me do that more. Contact at theculturalhall.com. If this has meant anything to you, helped you out in times of trial, uh, made you curious about things, or even questioned some things within yourself, and then you've had to work through them, I would love to hear any and all stories. Contact at theculturalhall.com in anticipation of our 500th episode. If this is your first, you've got some binge listening to do, but start with this episode of The Cultural Hall. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. Honored to be joined by Chris Blythe, who has authored the book Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints and the American Apocalypse. I, I tell you what, uh, Chris, if nothing else, you know how to write a, uh, a title of a book that would get my, my attention. When you <laughs> call you. something terrible, I immediately go, all right, let's get into it. <laughs> now, we're going to talk about 10 different points of uh, essentially apocalypse, uh, apocalyptic theory, things within the church. That's coming up, but I want everyone to know, uh, who, who is this guy that writes a terrible book? So who are you? I am Chris Blythe. I'm a scholar at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute um, down the road here at BYU, and uh, I'm the father of three great boys. My youngest is eight. Okay. And I'm the husband of a wonderful lady, 
Christine Blythe. Her oh, that's, really that's, that's sort of fun. Yeah. <laughs> and she is in charge of the folklore archives here at BYU. Interesting. So, yeah. So a couple questions about uh, 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 a few things that you said. What, first of all, is the Folklore Institute at BYU? I would be curious. This is the Folklore Archives. And so um, it's part of the special collections here. It's been around. We had a, a famous Latter-day Saint folklorist at BYU, a guy named William A. Wilson, sometimes called Burt Wilson. And so he donated all of his papers you know, 20 years ago or so, and they started a, a little archive unit at the library. So this is where you go if you want to learn about three Nephite appearances and Bigfoot as Cain, but also, you know, stories about home teaching and what, and, and now about COVID and home church. And so it's a great place to, to go in and you can listen um, or you can read um, various first-person accounts from Latter-day Saints and folklore. So pretty cool. Uh, that is awesome. Yeah. I had no idea we had such a thing. It, we do. It's a a special secret for sure. Well, not a secret anymore. We just told everyone. That's now, right. Now, also, you make the assumption that everyone knows what the uh, the Neil A. Maxwell Institute is, and I think that yeah. a lot of people probably have heard of it, right? We go, oh, Elder Maxwell, sure, he is an apostle. He probably, you know, was a, a president or served at BYU at some point, but we just sort of toss it away as a namesake for for something. So. So what is it, and why is uh, President Maxwell or Elder Maxwell affiliated with it? Well, you know, Elder Maxwell is known for being a very thoughtful Latter-day Saint that believed in believed that our, our faith can be rich and something we, we invest great thought into. And, and you know, we, we even know that he was a bit of an artist in his theology and writing his Enoch letters and other things. Um, brilliant man. So it's an honorary um, title for him. And the Institute itself, is uh, in the past was probably better known as Farms. Farms isn't associated mm. with it anymore, but it was once a sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, some people characterize it as sort of an apologetic branch um, of BYU here. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not its current mission. So Farms is no, no longer. But the Maxwell Institute today is a, a place where several of those scholars, some previously associated with Farms, are uh, now supported by the church to study the gospel in ways that emphasize its richness and is directed both to the saints and to, you know, the academy, including non-members. We have wonderful projects there. Most recently, we have released 12 very important volumes to go along with our reading of the Book of Mormon this year Mm -hmm. um, called Brief Theological Introductions, and each one is named after a different book. So, Joseph Spencer, great BYU professor of the Book of Mormon, wrote the first one, Brief Theological Introduction to First Nephi. Terrell Givens wrote Second Nephi. Oh, wow. Jacob is a great philosopher named Deidre Green. Um, even Elder Holland's well-known son, David Holland, wrote a, a wonderful contribution to this series. So really exciting things going out there. Lots of us, such as myself, just kind of have a, a nice three-year position where we're told to, <laughs> to write some books. And so they don't tell us what to write, but they say, we're going to support you for this time period. Do something good. Nice. Yeah. Nice. And that's where this terrible book comes from. Yes. This is my first thing here. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So I, I, I am curious. So uh, for people that uh, may be familiar with farms or uh, an apologetic, the term is odd. Like yeah. when we hear apology and we hear apologetic, I don't know that everyone 
gets exactly what that is. So apologetics is sometimes used as a disparaging term, and I think that's you know it's the worst. Yeah. Um, it means a defense, and so I think you know this is something that Peter encouraged the saints to have. We could find all sorts of quotes in the scriptures, and so in the church we have some great scholars who have devoted their careers to the defense of the gospel, and um, while sometimes that defense can take a negative connotation of defensive, mm-hmm. the best work, um, you know, emphasizes what we know. So they point out things like how the scriptures work together in a way, how the Book of Mormon relates to the, the Bible, mm-hmm. um, and might answer questions. You know, uh, Joseph Smith used a seer stone. Well, is that something Latter-day Saints should be concerned about? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, there was once a practice called plural marriage. You've heard these things. Mm-hmm. What's the truth? Mm-hmm. And, and those sorts of things. And so while the Neil and Maxwell Institute is still about encouraging faith and belief and, and strengthening testimonies in the gospel, we're less on the defense right now. Mm. We're more on the offense. So we want to go out there and show all the wonderful things that are associated with the restored gospel. And we also want to show all the, the things just in scholarship that it's, that's worth our attention, that it's interesting to study that it tells us stuff about uh, humanity, about being a Latter-day Saint, sometimes about being American, sometimes about being a Latter-day Saint in other countries, and so on. And we want to expand those stories. So, you know, another initiative that's going on right now is to encourage women authors to submit to our wonderful Living Faith book series that comes out of it. Again, this doesn't take a traditional apologetics route, but it brings out Latter-day Saint voices that have sometimes been neglected and shown how Latter-day Saint, uh, well, how the gospel interacts in individuals' lives, different ways to think about things that maybe you wouldn't read about in the Enzyme, but can expand on some of those ideas we have. This seems to me like the place where I would want to hang out, like within the church, right? Like uh, when I think about all the different groups and organizations and, and, and folks like that, like I like the giving the voice to the otherwise maybe not heard before or certainly not a strong voice, um, the going on the offensive instead of defensive as far as things. But as you point out, it's good to have a good defense. You can't yeah. you can't win the the football team right or the football game BYU if we don't have a good defense <laughs> as long as well as a as a good offense. I think that's absolutely right. There is so much to unpack even in what you said so far, but I want to make sure that we. Cue up the sort of 10 prepared things um, that you and I discussed before we would come into this as we talk about the uh, apocalypse and apocalyptic thinking and 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 the things within the church and certainly the things within your terrible. I just like calling it a terrible book. I, it is a great book. Well, but I fun. like calling it terrible because of its title. I, I would to point out, though, too, that um, like the Cultural Hall, the Neil A. Maxwell Institute has um, podcasts and other means available to be able to learn about what's going on. What's the best place if people want to know the latest and greatest, if it's podcast, blog, book, etc., about the yeah, Institute? We, we have a website. I'm pretty positive it's mi.byu.edu. Okay. Um, I'm not entirely sure, but if you type in the Maxwell Institute, it's going to come up. And uh, there's a monthly newsletter, a regular podcast, and there's even an annual report where you can go back and see everything that you might have missed throughout the year. That's awesome. And even if that's not the correct website, I will make sure that we uh, link in the show notes for this episode 
the exact website. So you just have to go to the show notes and people can click there and be able to find it. So without any further ado, as we discuss your book, uh, I want to go through um, these 10 little known facts. We'll hit up a couple of them and then we'll take a break. We'll come back and hit up a couple more of them, come back and then we'll hit the uh, last few as we make our way. These facts, uh, little known as they are, are also listed in the show notes. So If you want to know exactly what time uh, in the episode that we do that each of these are at, you can find the exact time and be able to pick it up. Maybe it's it's good fodder for a family home evening lesson, something to be able to come back and visit to. So without further ado, uh, me and Chris Blythe talking 10 little-known facts about Latter-day Saint beliefs on the last days and prophecy. And if I were doing special effects right, I would have prophecy echo into the existence, right? Prophecy, 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 prophecy. Number one. The second coming is complicated. Now, I asked you to write these 10 things, and I read through the first one, and I was like, okay, what what do you mean by the second coming is complicated? I think that could mean lots of things, but uh, what I think about, you know, often people will point out to me quickly that the second coming isn't actually that huge of a theme in the Book of Mormon. Um, it only appears four times, and so... And certainly the sort of grand appearance of Jesus Christ where all people see him at once um, doesn't appear in many of prophetic conversations and the materials that I've, that I've studied over the past several years. Um, sometimes it does. But Bruce R. McConkie pointed out something that uh, you know I never thought would be this great academic insight, <laughs> but it was. And it's that among Latter-day Saints, the second coming, sure, we expect this great appearance to happen in the future. Um, But along the way, the second coming has several earlier appearances. So we expect the Savior to appear suddenly in his temple. Mm -hmm. We expect him to, and that, that of course, is associated with Jackson County, Missouri. We expect him to appear at Adam on Diamond, certainly what I believe is is the most emphasized appearance. Many early Latter-day Saints in the 19th century expected the Savior to appear in Utah. Many prophecies discuss that. and No no official prophecies, but amongst Latter-day Saints themselves, an expectation of that at the Salt Lake Temple. And, uh, and we also see his appearance in um, Jerusalem, in the Old World. And so I think when we think of the Second Coming, as Bruce R. McConkie pointed out so well in his Millennial Messiah, we need to think of this multi-step process where their Savior returns to take care of the last bits of business to tie up all the strings mm-hmm. in his church and before that grand appearance. And so, yeah, the second coming is complicated in our understanding as Latter-day Saints. But I also think within what you just said, that's also pretty simple because the more hmm. complicated thing is figuring out how Christ is going to be uh, in Utah in his temple as well as in Adam on Diamond and his Jerusalem, you know, like how, how is he able to accomplish all those things at this grand second coming? Like it also helps me go, yeah, okay, it's not all at once. Like it, <laughs> it like it's a, it's a little simple. It doesn't have to be that massive thing. I love it. Maybe we should amend that one. The yeah. second coming is complicated, dash, dash, dot, 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 and simple. Okay, okay. <laughs> Consider it amended. Nice. Now, as we move into the second one, Towards the end of Joseph Smith's life, he organized the Council of Fifty, which he envisioned would function as a millennial government. 
That's a lot there. I know recently here in the Cultural Hall, we've talked about the Council of 50 as it sort of w- was a sort of a marker in time. And, and feel free to correct me if I'm remembering this incorrectly, but the, uh, as a marker of time where going into the Council of 50 is when um, the, the, uh, the idea of polygamy was sort of obscure. And then as we came out of the Council of 50 is where uh, polygamy became a little bit more prominent or certainly on display from Joseph and some of the other brethren. That's just mm-hmm. a small por- portion of this. So what is what is the Council of Fifty in relation to this millennial government? Yeah, so when Joseph Smith organized the Council of Fifty, this was a, you know, there's problems with this term, but it was a secret society. This was a group that you wouldn't tell others that you were mm-hmm. part of. Mm-hmm. Um, people didn't know about it. Joseph met with this group, and uh, they quickly began to talk about it as the kingdom of God, as the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, that the church, sure, of course, needs to be restored, but that God has this government, and this government's not even related to what religion you are, Mm -hmm. that when Christ returns, he's going to be part of a a government organization that's over Hindus and Latter-day Saints and Catholics and so on, and this millennial government was, was beginning there really all theory um, in that three months of Joseph Smith's life as they begin to think about it and think about their individual roles, what's it mean to be a member of the Council of Fifty, and what it means to be this sort of, at least for a time, a sort of theoretical legislature. And eventually these same men, when they cross the Rocky Mountains and come to come to Salt Lake City, this will be the the, the same members of this Council of Fifty will be the legislature of Deseret. But it's fascinating to know that Joseph, his last major move, you know, throughout his life, he's thinking of things like United Orders and how that might affect a millennial government. We need to build Zion and mm-hmm. the way Zion's structured economically. We need to organize all parts of the church, the Relief Society, the, the priesthood, and so on. And at the end of his life, he thought, particularly since he realized that getting government protection and protecting the Constitution was kind of hard to do in the political system, the divided 19th century. Um, he envisioned, envisioned this, this united community of sort of politicians hmm. coming together to try to create a perfect world. So I think the Council of 50 is so important in understanding Joseph Smith's understanding of what the millennium would look like and how that might be brought about. We know the Council of 50 would operate in Utah up until the end of well, at least till the 1880s. Pretty fascinating. Do, do you feel like the Council of 50 is something that we don't talk very much about? I feel like only as I've started to be like, wait a minute, as it kind of bookmarked in my mind, I went, Council of 50, that's not the Council of 12, that's not the this, and then have looked for it in different places, certainly as, as Joseph Smith papers have come out and, and you yeah. get some of that. Like, I feel like we're talking more about it, but have we long eschewed it because we go, yeah, it's a sketchy group of, uh, you know, <laughs> like that, that, that's it's, a secret thing. We don't, we don't talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And we did. I mean, when... When we say this is a secret, I mean, I don't think people, I think for a hundred years we were treating it as a secret because we didn't want people to misunderstand it. Right. You know, all sorts of accusations that this was treasonous. Because we, of its governmental impacts? Yeah, because okay. it's governmental and certainly that it's, uh, you know, it's in this group that Latter-day Saints said we're going to, well, that, that would take over the responsibility to run Joseph Smith as president of the United States, but also that would plan a sort of extra United States government um, out in the West. Um, And so 
there were concerns on that end. I do think we avoided discussing it. It was even uh, taken out of some diaries that were published in the early 1900s. Um, but as we have realized that uh, treating our past as if it has dirty secrets really backfires. Sure. Um, that's better to be transparent. Now we, we've done a great job, at least the church history department's done a great job in publishing, you know, I mean, the Council of 50 Papers, I I spent a decade, every time I would see a major church histor- historian asking him, hey, when are we going to see those Council of 50 Papers that mm-hmm. we've read about but have never been published? And they would always say, well, you know, I don't know, and, you know, some things aren't going to come out. You know, there's always <laughs> kind of brushing it aside. And then uh, one day I got a phone call from uh, Matt Grow, who was working on the papers right then. Yeah, Matt Grow, by the way, who is a great friend of the Cultural Hall. He's helped us with a bunch of different episodes. Oh, fantastic. I've uh, been able to connect and talk about uh, uh, various things. So just yes. wor- worth sh- shouting out. Oh, that's awesome. I, I adore Matt Grow. And, uh, and I got to tell you, I, this was the most exciting thing in the world for me. But I've been so disappointed because it came out. And still not everyone's read it. Uh-huh. It's free. You can go on and have access to, you know, hundreds of pages of Joseph Smith's last thoughts um, that we just, we waited for for years. And even people, I, I've noticed some, you know, if you go on a sort of amateur scholar level on the internet, you'll see people still asking, when are we going to go to those minutes? And I, every time I see that, I'd respond snarky, like, well, you just got to go yeah. to this website. Yeah. You can read it yourself. Yeah. Um, You're like, copy, paste, URL, here. That's right. That's where, that's when. You know, it's interesting. So you talk about that, and one of the things that I have both appreciated and sort of remarked as I've noticed this in different people's lives is that with the onslaught of information that has come from the internet, the church about two decades ago, I think, really sort of went, yeah, guys, we're not we're we're not doing ourselves any favors by trying to hide this. And then you have projects like the Joseph Smith Papers that are just like, let's put it out. Let's have Absolutely. these amazing scholars, you know, either dissect it or explain it or you know at least be uh, aware and more available of these things, so that when people are going, hey, wait, I I don't, I've never even heard of a Council of Fifty, and then quickly their faith crumbles. <laughs> That's right. You know, I mean, really, because about face. Yeah, because yeah. they're. For so many people, they hear something like this and go, I've never even heard of this. Mm-hmm. What else have I not heard of? Are there other things? There's a secret society, and certainly anytime we get into secret things, people go, wait, wh- why, are we, what, mm-hmm. why are we shadowing this in-, in secrecy? Why didn't we know about it? And anytime we can just shine a light on those things and, and like you say, be on the offensive saying, here's what it is. This is why it's so great. Yeah. I, th- I think we've done our- ourselves a tremendous service with that. I want to take a quick break. Uh, I want to come back, and in the second block, we've got more points. We've only made it through two of these, of the 10 little-known facts about Latter-day Saint beliefs on the last days. Queuing it up, we're talking about the Constitution. Is it hanging by a thread? I love that. We'll talk about it coming back in the second block. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. 
When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Hey, this is Dan, the Laptop Man from PC Laptops. I know we're going through a lot right now. Many states are quarantining people to their homes so that they have to work remotely. One of the things that's really important is to have a computer that's functioning correctly. One with a good webcam, one that's fast so you can be productive, one that has a good quality screen because you're going to be on this all day remotely. Computer supply has been strained because manufacturing has almost stopped. At PC Laptops, we've secured a limited quantity of laptop and desktop computers that are backed with a lifetime service guarantee. They're available for you right now in limited quantity. The great thing about PC Laptops is this. Once you buy your new computer, if you have any problems or questions, we're here to take care of you. Also, to make it really easy right now, we've arranged with some banks to offer 12-month special financing. Get into PC Laptops right now, because at PC Laptops, we're here for you, and we're in this together. PCLaptops.com. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, if you are not a part of the Cultural Hall back row, make sure you find us on Facebook. You can find it by searching... The Cultural Hall Back Row. Simple as that. It's a great place where uh, you don't have to pay any money to be a part of. It's just a bunch of people nerding out about various things uh, that we talk about in each of our episodes. Uh, Maybe you want to make connection with other people who love this show like you do. It's the Cultural Hall Back Row. Love to have you there. Over 150 people hanging out there and having conversations that you can't be a part of if you don't find the Cultural Hall back row. Now, Chris, uh, let's get right into it. Uh, We've got eight more that we need to tackle. Joseph Smith really did prophesy that the Constitution of the United States would be in danger and the saints would protect it. And I think classically we know and hear the thought that one day it will hang by a thread and and all of those things. So, so, so what about all this? I love it. You know, what I've noticed since researching this book is that there's, uh, from newspapers covering Mitt Romney, from social media, uh, there's been a lot of having fun with this prophecy. But usually, this is a prophecy that in public discourse, uh, people are regularly denying, mm. which is pretty fascinating. And it's part of a confusion um, because this one line is quoted in a document called the White Horse Prophecy, mm-hmm. and the church has been really clear that the White Horse Prophecy wasn't an official document. It didn't come from Joseph Smith. People assume that that line within it, that the prophecy will hang by a thread or the Constitution will hang by a thread, um, was also debunked. Um, but that was never the case. So uh, the first time the church spoke against this in 1918, um, the White Horse Prophecy, um, people made that assumption then. But by 1941, Charles Nibley, the presiding bishop, came out and wrote a great article that said, no, guys, I don't know why people think <laughs> we don't think the Constitution is going to hang by a thread. We really do. And these are the people that said it, Brigham Young, Eliza R. Snow, um, you know, so on and so forth. The earliest citation we have from Joseph Smith on this is 1840. The summer of 1840 um, gives a great sermon in which this is mentioned And so, yeah, if there's any doubt, this is a legitimate and never rejected, never sort of debunked idea that Joseph Smith had. Now, how that relates on the ground, of course, is a whole lot of speculation. Sure, sure. But um, this just as a blanket idea, the same sort of thing that Zion will be established in Jackson County or any of those ideas that Mm -hmm. were established in the early church, this is an authentic one. And and as, as I write in my book, it's a 
it's it's really a constant. I call it political messianism. That Latter Day Saints will play some role. Now that rule is never we're going to accept when Joseph Smith was running for the presidency, but since then it's never been we're going to put the right politician in the right place. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's always been a you know will we protect the Constitution? Well, in the 19th century, we'd protect the Constitution because America would fall, but we would protect it out west. You know, later on, we'd protect it. As Tappinson would say, we'd protect it because we'd vote for righteous leaders and mm-hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so all sorts of different ways that this has been interpreted across time. But yeah, Joseph really said that. <laughs> well, so a couple things. One, we we don't do a great job of it even today here. You know, this year, this time, at this time that we're ta- we're chatting about it, mm-hmm. I think that several still think that that it is linked with the white horse prophecy even today. And we just go, yeah, yeah, that's, that's for that certain group of people that we sort of roll our eyes at and go, mm-hmm. all right, you know, yes, hanging by a thread. We'll let you have that because I just don't have the energy to, to fight against you about that. So interesting to note, not only Joseph Smith, but also Brigham Young and some of these other. Eliza Snow and, and most recently Ezra Tapp Benson, you know, major, major uh, theme running through his, his discourses. But then also, uh, that any time that there is a uh, member of the church who finds himself in um, high prominence, you've mentioned Mitt Romney, mm-hmm. certainly when he ran for president, when Harry Reid, you know, in the in the Senate and all of these different things, everyone likes to go, that's our guy. This is it. <laughs> you know, that brief moment right. of when when uh, Senator Jeff Flake re- rejected, you know, Donald Trump. And it was like, mm-hmm. see, here we go. We, we all want it to be our guy and we want to be the one to say first. We knew it. We right. knew it was going to be that guy. And, and now it's become comedy. Right. So, yes. I mean, it's a if I was going to write an article just about this today, I think I'd focus on the sort of humor of it. Yeah, I have a, a good Catholic scholar friend who studies the church, and she jumped up and, and wrote several different comments on Jeff Flake and mm-hmm. acting as if she thought this was real, but tongue-in-cheek the whole way. You know? Oh, wow. And so I think it's out there for sure. When Mitt Romney ran, I, I didn't meet as many church members that were taking this prophecy actually seriously. There was a, a major evangelical leader that quoted it as part of a, a sermon um, that made a lot of headway where he said, well, maybe this is right. Hmm. Maybe Mormons are going to play this role and Mitt Romney's our guy. Hmm. So, Spoiler, fascinating. he wasn't. <laughs> well, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> not yet. I'm pointing to the guy. What, what do you think, um, g- given the different um, verbiage as, as you've seen these things sort of written out uh, with the words that Joseph Smith said, the words that Eliza Snow and, uh, and Brigham Young as well, is it the is it the written that one day the Constitution will hang by a thread, or is it just mm-hmm. the promise that members of the church would be those to kind of step in and speculate for me, if you will? What do you think it it, it means? Is it contextual oh. with the language of the time, or I think yeah. So hanging by a thread um, shows up under Brigham Young and Eliza Snow. It it becomes the rhetoric in Utah. Before that, you know, I can't remember the wording of this Martha Corey quote, but it's, uh, I think it's the Constitution will be on the verge of collapse. Mm. But that shows up all over the place. Usually, you know, in, in, a, in a document like Angel of the Prairies um, or other 1850s and later uh, sort of narrative prophecies on what it's going to be like in the last days, usually the government crumbles in the United States and then the Constitution is preserved in the West. Um, early Latter-day Saints took this idea and in, um, in section 88, very seriously, where it talked about 
you know, if you don't want to participate in violence in the last days, you need to flee to the West hmm. or, or, or flee to Zion, of course. This is a place of safety. And so Latter-day Saints are often, they're not saying we're going to protect the United States government. They didn't think they were in a position to do that um, until statehood happened. And so what they believed was that they were going to have this land of liberty in the West. And that was sort of representation of what they thought they were doing. And so, you know, we we saw ourselves as a, you know, and mini Ellis Island out here, you know, refugees are going to come out here and they're going to be able to have their rights. And, and that includes, you know, whether this is true in practice or not. In theory, that included non-Latter-day Saints and well, as well. And so we would protect everyone's rights. Really a beautiful idea they had about their purpose. And I, I think there's some of that still um, in the way Utahns think about themselves, mm-hmm. but uh, very different from the idea that your political candidate's going to be the right guy to to get enough votes to wreck havoc in the office. Yeah, I I very cynically think. Well, I I have it's I haven't heard that quote about the Constitution hanging by a thread for a couple of years. Oh, it's election time. That's why I'm hearing it again. Mm-hmm. Right? We mm-hmm. always sort of espouse it to be guys. That's right. This guy, this lady. Mm-hmm. Do are we not seeing this? That's are you right. not seeing this like I see this? If you were in a time time machine, went back to the 19th century, I don't think they would think of it the same way. Right. I think they would think, huh, that's strange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number four, several major prophecies credited to church leaders were not actually made by church leaders. This is this is classic <laughs> Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saintisms, right? That's right. There's there is a lot. Um, the most, you know, the White Horse prophecy, everybody at this point realizes, here's this, uh, well, they might not realize, this is a very lengthy prophecy. It was popular throughout the, really, throughout the the early 20th century, the whole thing. It, it endures in some circles presently. Lengthy prophecy, most of the material within it you can find in other, uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants, but prophecy itself was not put together by Joseph Smith. It's a it's a man who claims to have heard Joseph Smith give a sermon in 1840, and then he wrote it down 60 years later with the idea that he was remembering this word for word. Mm, mm. Um, church leaders were very concerned. 1918, they spoke out against it. But at the same time, they spoke out against another prophecy that had been credited to Joseph F. Smith um, and later then credited to Wilford Woodruff. This prophecy showed destructions throughout the United States, um, very graphic prophecy um, in which bodies are piled mountain high um, across the Chesapeake. And um, that's whatever figure this is, he's Baltimore and New York City and all these destructions. None of that would be outside of descriptions that you might find in the scripture. Um, But the idea that this was specifically pointing um, creates a major concern and has, has sense this sort of hopeless moment. Joseph F. Smith, in that same sermon, he rejected the White Horse Prophecy, rejected that. However, it still shows up. It's published in very popular books. Mm-hmm. It's quoted by BYU professors, and they just missed that, missed his his comment there. We focus on his rejection of the White Horse Prophecy. We don't reject that one. Um, and there's several other great examples. The key, of course, is you got to be careful. And so if you want to if you want to wrestle with 19th century documents, you got to make sure you understand their context, where they're coming from. It's an interesting thing in addition to that, though, that there are some, you talk about like BYU professors and certainly just as members of the church, who are trying our best. We may quote or cite those things and be like, you know, I'm just really trying to believe as best as I can. 
And and this happened to be a thing that I, either I came up with on an internet search that sort mm-hmm. of fortified my belief, and, and I'm going to adhere to it, and I'm not going to research into it. There are those people. And to those people, I you know, I say, check your sources, but also that's sort of middle of the road. But then there oh, are, I think that's right. But then there are people who would take those words and embolden embolden their cause mm. to to a detriment to our society. Oh, I think that's right. This one has been used quite a bit. I, I've received several emails about it um, related to the pandemic because it shows widespread disease mm-hmm. and and it appears that it's a depiction of Salt Lake City is in a state of quarantine. And, you know, so for a moment like this, that might not be what we need, uh, particularly when prophets are telling us this is going to pass, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I uh, I think it can it can lead in counter message that we might not want to emphasize. The one I'm talking about right now is most recently uh, credited to John Taylor. And so you'll see this as John Taylor's vision. But long before that, first it first appears as a uh, as credited to a 70. So an anonymous yeah. thing that says a 70. And of course, a 70 at the time it was written uh, is the same as sort of like an elder, yeah. just a member of the church. Yeah. My grandpa was a 70, but he never, you know, wor- worked for the church in the way that we would think of a 70 now. Right. Yeah. Like a high counselor, kind of. <laughs> That's right. And so it's switched and, and we like it. And I think I'm, I'm not dismissing this. I mean, it's possible the 70 had this revelation, but it's always misleading when we say, here it is in the words of... President, you know, another one, President Hinckley would have to come out against several that would be credited to him Mm -hmm. during his reign. Well, there will be a hush that will fall over. That's my favorite one (laughs) Uh, I'm alluding to. There will be a hush that will fall over the crowd in heaven. And they'll ask, in which time did you live? And you'll say, I lived in the time of President Gordon B. Hinckley. And every (laughs) knee shall bow. And it's like, I don't. No. And they actually, that was my first time that I remember that they actually came out and guys and were like, guys, in my lifetime, they were like, guys, nope. No, mm-hmm. a lot of no, 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 no. Now and we go, all have to be embarrassed because yeah. we all said it. Yeah, yep. we all found found a little bit of booster of faith. Now I was alluding to something, kind of walking around the bush, only because I I wanted to make sure that I knew uh, which number uh, episode it was for the cultural hall that I was talking about. Um, but when we talk about those that would take the words of these early prophecies and, and and use them as the way that they would want to, one great example of this is. Um, illustrated in an episode that we did, uh, episode 441, where we visited with uh, Betsy Quammen, who has written a book about American Zion and talks about the Bundys and the Nay book, uh, which I don't know how familiar you are, but it's essentially a book full of quotes, scriptures, and things that people have said, yeah. and I'm air quoting that, to empower their cause against some some sort of, of federal takeover uh, to them. So a fascinating listen if you haven't seen how uh, what um, Chris is talking about, how it coincides with what is going on in present day? I encourage you to check that out. Oh, it's episode so 441. Yeah, yeah. And you can, and we could spend the rest of the time on that principle okay. alone, but we're not going to. We move on to uh, number five, which is Joseph Smith's martyrdom was considered the fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Revelation. Yeah. Um, early on, when Joseph Smith really even before his death, um, there was a lot of emphasis on a scene in the book of Revelation, and it's, it's actually uh, the opening of the fifth seal. And the opening of the fifth seal in the book of Revelation, uh, the seals are in a book, right? And we often, as Latter-day Saints, think of this as world history being revealed as the opening of these books. And uh, the scene is an 
altar, and there are many martyrs under the altar who have who have died. You know, this is a sort of heavenly altar and a divine throne room, and uh, they're praying and they're saying, you know, how long, Lord, do we have to wait? When will you avenge us for for our deaths? Right, and uh, they're told. Uh, to be patient, that uh, they need to wait till all the mar- martyrs were there. Your your other brethren need to come. And uh, often Joseph Smith was uh, depicted as the final martyr. This idea, particularly right after the martyrdom, that his martyrdom meant that really the time of the martyrs had ended. Now, of course, we'd realize there'd be martyrs very soon. But that moment brought a lot of hope to the saints that, th- that his death had had some fulfillment. And, and and it still did, um, even though we realized that actually there are more, more martyrs that would come. Parley P. Pratt, for example, who died 13 years later. At this moment, Latter-day Saints believe that Joseph Smith's martyrdom did make it. So, you know, now is time to get the saints out of the United States proper because bad things are going to happen there. We need to go to safety. And, of course, lots of Latter-day Saints would think the Civil War and other things um, were partly tied into the things that happened because of Joseph Smith's death, uh, much as you know the fall of Jerusalem after the Savior's death. Pretty interesting. Other people pointed to Joseph Smith's martyrdom, such as Orson Hyde, and he would talk about the two martyrs that died. And um, Of course, in the context of the book, these two martyrs die in Jerusalem. But many early Latter-day Saints would say, well, it seems like Joseph and Hiram could have fit those roles. It's an interesting—my th- only point here was to say that Joseph Smith's martyrdom was really crucial and the way early Latter-day Saints conceived a sort of last day's timeline and what they were looking for and expecting. Well, and for so many people, I think that when the the time, especially back in that time from things that I've, I've studied, heard, talked about, uh, that people believed that the second coming would come within the time of their life back in the 18, you know, in the early 1800s, sure. right? So they are looking for the very fulfillment of these things that they've read and and looking and pointing and saying this must be this this must be this yes. because i i have a firm belief that christ will come before i die and some leaders may have even spoken to that as well oh oh absolutely this is their expectation um and and of course joseph smith martyrdom is still part of our conceptions of the last days is the testimony is not in force until mm-hmm. the testator sheds his blood i suppose you know however it's written in section 135 um so this gives the the gospel message, and the last days are based on when people will hear that message, right? Missionaries are going out spreading this message, and we believe that's really key into the winding up scene. Yeah, and and when we see the own words of Joseph Smith, you know, saying that he's going to a la- like a lamb to the slaughter, that he knows. I mean, there's a certain am- amount of, of prophecy and fulfillment Absolutely. In, in his own words. Let's take another break. When we come back in the third block, We're going to hit out the rest of these. We've got our work cut out for us as we make our list through the 10 little-known facts about Latter-day Saints' beliefs on the last days and prophecies. We'll come back and do that in the third block of the Cultural Hall. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, encourage you to financially support the the Cultural Hall. You can do that. Uh, Think of us like Netflix for your ear holes. It's patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. You allow us to have a website, to have um, things like, you know, microphones and and, and various things that uh, allow us to share the episodes that we record here of the cultural hall. It is very much appreciated. It, It lets me know that you value the time that I spend 
uh, in not only contacting these guests, but interviewing them and, and being able to provide all the different information that we do. So please, patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Remember that if you do make that donation, uh, that you get to be a part of the secret but not sacred Facebook group, which exists for all of you Patreon saints. That's patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. Now, Chris, I know that our time, though not limited, I always like to put a limit on it. Otherwise, I would talk to you all day about these kind of things. <laughs> uh, so we are to number six, that is, some saints speculated that Christ would return or other important events would occur in 1890. Why 1890? I think this is important. So Joseph Smith would say in 18. 18- was it 1835 or 1830? I think it was 1835. He tells the saints that, you know, an, another however many years up to 1890 would prove the winding up scene. He gives this one statement to the 12 apostles there. Um, later on, he would receive a, he would explain how he came up with that idea. And, it's, and of course, this is fascinating. And in the Doctrine and Covenants, he talks about how he prayed to know when the Savior would come. And uh, the answer was that if he was 85 years old, the Savior would not come before he was 85 years old. And he mm-hmm. said, I was left to see, or, or he wouldn't see the Savior until 85 in whatever special way they're, they're talking about. And, uh, and Joseph says, I was left to make my own determination. But one thing's for sure, it's not going to happen before that. Hmm. And that's uh, so early on, it seems like 1890 is a really important event. He goes on to say, well, not before 1890. And that's the emphasis he'll be placing when he will be telling the saints this, because many people thought 1844 was going to be the year mm. through, through the influence of William Miller, a very popular uh, antebellum preacher. And so this, this sticks around for lots of saints. Um, uh, Wilford Woodruff at one point in the 1880s will say that the United States will collapse before 1890. But as that time gets closer and closer, the apostles begin to warn and say, uh, guys, there's too much left to happen. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't think 1890 is the year. And when the October 1890 general conference happens, um, it's clear that everybody has um, that in mind. So many sermons are about the nearness of the second coming. But people say things like, I don't expect to happen this year or next year, um, but I expect every year until the Savior happens to to be important, that we are in the last days. Other people would would stress things like, maybe something important will happen this year, but I suspect we might not even see the significance of it. 1890 passed. Some were disappointed, but it was never this, this major deal in the church because the apostles had begun to emphasize, you know, what we see in section 130 now is that this was uh, not. This was encouraging us to realize that it had two. It was two generations away rather than right now, mm-hmm. and that that message has remained with church leaders for the most part. There have been a few moments, um, and and maybe we're in one of those moments, but uh, <laughs> uh, where church leaders have seemed to say, "No, we need to understand this is this is soon." But for the most part, um, you know, famous talk from Boyd K. Packer a decade ago, where he says. You know, your grandchildren are going to have time to grow up. So uh, always that encouragement of saying you're in the last days. You need to realize the game is on. We got stuff to do, but uh, but don't think it's tomorrow. Don't max out those credit cards. You're going to have to pay them back. <laughs> uh, number seven is early Latter-day Saints believed that Native Americans would play an essential role in preparing for the second coming of Christ. 
this is so important um, to early Latter-day Saint understandings of, and, and I mean, we still read this today in Third Nephi. Sometimes we overlook it or we want to downplay it, but the idea that Native Americans will play a role in building that last day's city, that there's some sort of conflict between Gentiles, whoever that body is, and Native Americans. Those two ideas, that there would be Native American uprisings and that Native Americans would convert seemingly at some mass level um, and play a role in building Zion itself, Jackson County, was crucial. Orson Pratt, um, one of the most important Book of Mormon readers of the 19th century, would be in charge of adding footnotes in 1879 to this, would emphasize that in his footnotes, but he would also give sermons right before his death and several times in the 1870s to say, you guys are forgetting. This is the message. Like Native Americans are part of this story. That's why we had the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. And we've had a few reminders from general authorities since, um, but at the, at the such as Spencer W. Kemble, who were emphasizing those Book of Mormon prophecies related to them, but would have been very key, particularly in 19th century Latter-day Saint understandings of the events leading up to the Second Coming. But something we don't talk about today. Yeah, it seems like we have less. In fact, uh, Bruce R. McConkie, Millennial Messiah, says uh, we made too much of a big deal on that. Really? Um, which I, I think, you know, this isn't an official document. This is uh, Bruce R. McConkie's opinion. And oh, I, I mean, maybe it's official. Maybe he's right. But there's plenty of other voices that disagree with it. Sure, so. sure. Huh. So as we look toward, we, you know, with all this, people are like, well, but so what does it mean, Chris? When are we when are we having this second coming? What is this, you know, when is the apocalypse coming? Certainly something that people may just kind of, you know, footnote in their mind and go, yeah, maybe I should learn a little bit more about that. Or what? what is that cross-section with the church and Native Americans presently? Right. And I think we need to... The great thing that I've thought about as I've studied, because my book's about interpretation of these prophecies over time, Mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, I really believe in these things. I believe in the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's last days. You know, I believe we're in the last days. And so I think one of the important messages as we look at different interpretations over time is that we're not always going to know how these things are going to happen. And so we should be aware of them, and we shouldn't be too dogmatic about them. Yeah. Um, of course, we don't think Native Americans just refers to the Navajo and the Delaware. Maybe we should be open to it being all the people of the Americas and so on. So um, how these things come about is, is in God's hands still. Yeah. Uh, number eight is plague was a major theme in Latter-day Saint depictions of the apocalypse. And I thought this strikes a little c- too close to home, Chris. <laughs> this idea of a plague, or I call them pandemics. I mean, this is certainly anything that anyone can talk about nowadays. Right. Absolutely. So this overflowing scourge first discussed in, in, in Isaiah, but appears again in, I believe it's section eight. Now, it might be section 45. It's um, the discussion of these overflowing scourge. Early Latter-day Saints would often think uh, the last days sort of scourge that was coming through was cholera. Mm. And ultimately, there were more deadly diseases in the 19th century, but cholera was by far the scariest because you could be healthy in the morning and die in the afternoon. Mm. Um, But I think it's important in this part. (laughs) Stephen King had a a great tweet early in COVID um, where people were comparing uh, what happened in The Stand. And The Stand actually is a pretty good, if you compared it to sort of Latter-day Saint fictional representations of the last days Mm -hmm. um, and The Stand, I mean, you get something pretty similar. 
But uh, he made the point that says, you know, COVID just doesn't fit the sort of last day's disease that he was expecting um, in the stand. And I think that's also true in early Latter-day Saint expectations of this sort of last day's plague. Now, the good point about a plague or so on is the message of early Latter-day Saints is, yes, that, you know, all people bear these, we can't be protected from disease, but the story is often about the gathering, that the prophet um, has insight Mm -hmm. and will be able to protect the saints at some level of instilling quarantines or leading them to the right places in the Rocky Mountains and so on um, to offer some level of protection in this sort of last day's plague. You want to know something so funny? When you said Stephen King, I thought Stephen E. King, and then I thought Elder Stephen E. King. Is there someone that I'm missing? <laughs> like when you said this tweet from from Stephen King, I, in my mind I was like, I'm trying to assign this value within the church, where I'm like, Elder Stephen E. King. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds like someone that it could be. And you're talking, of course, about the sort of horror writer Stephen King. Yeah, I King, think but... about two groups of people. I think about general authorities and then apocalyptic writers. Sure, so I just sure. back and forth. <laughs> it was though. I I I was racking my brain, and then and. Then then I felt embarrassed and I wasn't going to share it, but I thought you would get a kick out of that. <laughs> I do uh, like that. Number nine, the Civil War prophecy was published in many newspapers across the United States in the 1850s. Yes. Section 87 is by far one of the coolest prophecies that Joseph Smith imparted, one of the coolest sections of the Doctrine and Covenants today. And of course, it predicts the Civil War, but at the end, it also predicts the collapse of all, you know, this is total war that's going to break out. And so not something we should just see as something in the past, but is a great moment. If I was going to switch over to that sort of apologist argument, I would say, look at Joseph Smith's prophetic ability here. Um, Lots of people have stated incorrectly that the saints didn't emphasize the Civil War prophecy until after it occurred. And of course, that's nonsense. Joseph Smith received this prophecy in 1832. He talked about it again in the 1840s. Um, but he did choose um, not to publish it in the Doctrine and Covenants he, uh, he, uh, or the Book of Commandments earlier. And uh, Brigham Young would say, uh, you know, it's just not time for us to publish that yet. Um, Joseph Smith um, would sometimes discourage the saints from emphasizing things like prophecies about Indian uprisings and things um, because it led to people not liking us very much. Sure. If you talk about uh, destructions on different cities, it sounds like maybe we want that to happen. And yeah. of course, section 109 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Kirtland Temple Prayer, Joseph makes it really clear, you know, Father, we, we don't desire these destructions on our fellow men. And so uh, in the 1850s, it's published first in Great Britain and the uh, pre-canonized, so before it was canonized, Pearl of Great Price, section what we now have is section 87 of the Doctrine and Covenants first appears there, and then it'll appear the next year in The Seer, a newspaper published by Orson Pratt, who is then sort of the mission president or the apostle in charge of the major part, major part of the United States, but based in Washington, D.C. And then missionaries began to share this message far and wide, and it began to be published in newspapers. One uh, missionary writes from California to Brigham Young in the eight, late 1850s and says he knows of it being published in nine different newspapers. Wow. Um, in my book, I talk about a few few publications once the war starts in the 1860s where they forgot where this prophecy comes from. They're not saying it comes from Joseph Smith. They're saying, look at this prophecy, the Civil War. It looks like it's going to come true. And these parts have already come true. And they speak of it as if they just found something from Nostradamus, you mm-hmm. know. Just really interesting how powerful and how quickly um, that moved across the United States. And, uh, 
you know, not all of this prophecy is fulfilled towards the end. There's still things that, such as a last day's plagues mentioned there, famine and so on. But it would be important for this understanding of prophecy. And of course, James Talmadge would teach us how later parts of it seem to relate to what happened in World War I. Um, some people have emphasized or, or speculated on maybe portions of the Cold War that relate to it and otherwise. I don't know about any of those, like other things, how this should be applied on the ground. But really a crucial understanding of Latter-day Saint representations of the last days. And it's kind of cool that the rest of America found out about this too and and ran with it in the 1850s. We've got one more, and I want to make sure we give it proper time. Much to the consternation of church leaders, many Latter-day Saints have claimed to be the one mighty strong, one like Moses, or the Davidic servant. So what what is all this? Yeah. You know, our scriptures um, often include references to um, figures, whether they're, you know, actually one figure, sort of a metaphor, something that's going to happen in the last days, of who will, will play an important role before the second coming of Christ. And so some you know, section 85 talks about one mighty and strong who will come and set in order the house of God. And this is, seems to be usually interpreted as setting in order, uh, sort of the United Orders, since it's a conversation about bishops in the time of Missouri. But uh, this description is very powerful, one mighty and strong in the last days who, you know, we don't often think about the original context. What's this player going to do? Another figure, one like Moses, who's discussed, or the man like Moses. Mm -hmm. Immediately, my mind goes to Brigham Young. Yeah. Um, Some people suggested Brigham Young was the man like Moses, and he said, Wait, why do you think it's me? Um, it's <laughs> Guys, gonna be somebody else. No thanks. Pass. <laughs> That's Hard right. Pass, please. That's right. Um, w. W. Phelps got in trouble for telling people he was the man like Moses, and the man like Moses um, is going to lead the saints to Jackson County again. Um, this is uh, you know right after Zion's camp failed. It predicts this man like Moses, and most people thought they were talking about Joseph Smith. And there's often a discussion of a Davidic servant. Joseph Smith believed that there would sort of be a well that there would be a, a Davidic king, sort of a mortal leader who uh, would uh, play a sort of political role in the last days um, under Christ. And, you know, he named his own son David. When Orson Hyde uh, dedicated Jerusalem, he also mentioned this figure, somebody descended from Judah that would take on this sort of political role. And how these things happen, again, I I don't know how they're going to be fulfilled on the ground. But one thing's for sure is that church leaders have had to deal with this for hundreds of years, mm-hmm. people showing up. You know, I, I love a sermon given in about 1911, and I think it's Anthony Lund, but I'm not sure. And he makes the point that uh, he constantly has people coming to his office and, uh, you know, coming from and presenting themselves as the one mighty and strong. And he he kind of pokes a little bit of fun, but says, you know, he's not trying to. He has this sort of very uh, increpid old man come in with a cane and explain this to him. And, and he said he had to send this weak old guy back to his home. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this idea of it's, it's actually kind of interesting. That's part of the experience of general authorities is to deal with those that have become maybe overly zealous mm-hmm. in prophecies and have had maybe what scripture called vain imaginations about what their role might be. Um, in these last days events. 
Rather interesting. I like what Brigham Young said when someone called him the man like Moses. He said, I want to be that great guy that the scriptures mentioned nothing about. <laughs> um, so. I love that. It, it, it's such an interesting thing when we look at, uh, you know, apocalyptic times, the fulfillment of prophecy. It really is. It comes from the place of people trying to make sense out of a thing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and this, whether it's a, a person, a way of thinking, provides an answer. Most of the time, not a correct answer, but <laughs> but but we latch onto it. Like I think of any conspiracy theory that I've read on, mm-hmm. you know, on social media, or you know, we t- can talk anything about the pandemic. And there's all these things where people are like, "Well, you know what it is," yeah. and because it's an answer, we latch onto it because it having an answer, correct or incorrect, is more comfortable for us than to live without an answer. I think that's right. Ambiguity is kind of scary. Yeah. Absolutely. It's exciting to live in a time where we have President Russell and Nelson who's uh, talking about a lot of a lot yeah. of last days events and positioning us in a way that points to how I think we should be thinking about these things. We should know about all of these facts and Everybody should read Terrible Revolution and fill themselves with all these <laughs> ideas and history. But we can also remember the, those things that we have a, we're a people with a mission. Um, and that mission, spreading the gospels, doing work for the dead, um, is being optimistic for sure. And uh, the message of the last days isn't meant to be a message of scary things. It's meant to be a message that, you know, there's a world to come and this world to come is better. And in the meantime, we have to do as much as we can to bring the traits of that world into our present, I think. This is is the idea of building Zion. Well said. The book is called Terrible Revolution, Latter-day Saints and the American Apocalypse. We'll have a link to it in the show notes if people want to pick that up, purchase it, consume it, eat it up, know it inside and out, and then be able to speculate their own theories, or at least make (laughs) Sunday school that much more exciting for them should we ever have Sunday school ever again? Now, now, Chris, before I let you go, there are three questions that we, last, that we ask everyone who steps into the culture hall. I'll ask those of you right now. The first one is, do you have a calling right now, sir? And if so, what is it? You know, I'm, I, I took the opportunity of COVID to buy a new house. So I moved across town. I don't even have a home teaching route yet. Well, but I, at my last calling was teaching 13-year-olds, and it seems like that's what I always do. So I'm expecting a, a call to teach the 13 and 14-year-olds in this board coming up. They like to uh, put you with like-minded people. That's Chris. right. That's all that is. <laughs> that is right. Uh, second, uh, if you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? Oh, my goodness. Um, steak storyteller. Okay. I think that would be fantastic. The... the uh, I'm not a I'm not a wonderful storyteller, but I love story. And so the idea of sitting down and collecting individual stories in the stake or and sharing those stories with others um, would be uh, would be a calling I think should be there because mm-hmm. um, it builds faith and community. But also, uh, gosh, that would just be the most fulfilling thing in the world for me. Hot take. Would you have snacks as part of your story? Um, yeah, okay. I would. Once, okay. once my wife lets me stop dieting, I <laughs> certainly would. I like her more and more. Uh, and then the last question, interpret this however you will. The question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a convert to the, to the church and, uh, 
I was raised Episcopalian, and growing up, I never learned. Uh, my parents were, you know, we, we said prayers. We always said prayers. And uh, so before bed and before special meals and things. Um, but nobody ever sat me down and said I could talk to God until I met missionaries. Mm. Um, and so um, that experience and, and the realization that uh, I'm talking to a real being who talks to me too through the Holy Ghost is the greatest part of my faith. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really grateful for that. Well, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we read 